Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Ann Foster, and this is part three of a three-part super special. So if you have not heard parts one and two, I mean, welcome, but also you really are going to want to listen to parts one and two or not. Maybe you like being confused and maybe you already know everything about Fredegund, Queen of Neustria, and her arch nemesis Brunhilde from Austrasia. But at this point, I feel like I'm going to do a little recap, but the first two episodes are kind of necessary here in a way. But I also wanted to give a uh, special, extra special welcome to, as per the information that I see when I log on to my little database on Spotify, people have been listening to this podcast from Luxembourg and from Germany. So, Guten Tag and bonjour to all of you. And I wanted to especially mention because the some of the land we're talking about here are, is modern day Luxembourg and or Germany. That's how far Fred and Brunhilde's empire spread. Not that they had a shared empire, but kind of in a way. So we're going to just jump right in because assuming you've all listened to parts one and two. The last thing that happened was uh, Fredegund kept trying to kill Brunhilde, kept not working. Um, she hosted a little dinner party and chopped off some people's heads. And here we are. So, part three. This is a little passage that I call Fred the Queen Era. So, it begins with Guntram died, finally, age 60 in 592. I mean, R.I.P. Guntram, but really, he was the last of those original brothers still around, and it's just time to step aside for the new generation, Guntram. I mean, it would have been nicer for him to retire or whatever, but go be a monk or... Anyway, R.I.P. Guntram, he's gone. And his will stipulated that Fred and her son Clothar could retain the same small bit of Neustria that they had, and Childebert and his mum Brunhilde got the rest of it. So this didn't really change anything. It was it was the status quo. So because remember, uh, Guntram had said that his heir was Childebert because he didn't have any living sons anymore. So Childebert took over his bits. Fred and Clothar still have the smaller bit. So this whole saga started with four Frankish kingdoms divided among four sons. And now it's down to two. I would call more like 1.5. Because Brunhilde and Childebert have like all of Western Europe, and Fred, Fredegund and Clothar have got like little tiny bit of it, maybe the size of like modern day Portugal. Not that that's where they were, but like that size. If you picture like Fredegund controlled like Portugal, and then Childebert and Brunhilde controlled like everything east of that, like to Russia practically. Not the, again, Portugal's not involved in the story. I just think of it as. A little tiny country in Europe and all the bigger countries around it. So this has all been going on for quite some time. Um, Fredegund and Brunhilde were now both in their 40s, meaning they were now better than ever before. Uh, smarter, more lived experience. And they'd both lived now a majority of their life as regents slash queens slash mortal enemies of each other. And so after Guntram died, things were kind of chill for like a year before Brunhilde decided to attack to claim back some land from Fredegund, which is like, I'm so sorry. Like, Fredegund has got so little land. Brunhilde has so much, but whatever. This is, this is the whole, this is the situation. Just, it's like none of the people in the story are ever going after any other kingdoms or countries around them. It's just like entirely just this like self. What is it? 
the thing where it's like the snake eating its own head, the Ouroboros. It's like all they do is just fight amongst each other as a family. It's very Fast and the Furious of them. So Brunhilde, and again, like technically, Clothar is the king of Neustria. Childebert is the king of Austrasia and Aquitaine. But like Fredegan and Brunhilde are in charge. So Fredegan was just like, I'm a hot woman in her 40s. I'm going to personally march out with my troops because I'm Fredegan, and that is what I'm going to do. And also because Brunhilde had done that before, both of them were, this is not usual. This is not historically what women in their society would do. Brunhilde, I think, had usually marched out with uh, her son ahead of her to be like, technically, he's the king, this little boy, but like, I'm Brunhilde, fear me, etc., Fredegan was just like, here's what's up. I'm going to just like invent the whole thing of like the warrior queen and the armor marching with her troops later done by um, Queen Elizabeth I famously by um, Isabella from Ferdinand and Isabella. Like Fredegan was like, and Brunhilde to give credit where credit is due. They're both just like, here's what's up. We're in our forties and this is happening. So and the thing also that I think I mentioned a bit before, but we're going to get into it here more, is that Fredegand was very well read about the history of just warfare and techniques. Remember, she sort of like invented putting poison on knives by figuring out ways to make snake venom shelf steady or whatever. She also partially just from, I honestly, who knows? Like, why did this, who is she? Like, she's just this, maybe pagan Celtic person, red hair, who is captured and made enslaved by the royal family and then wins over the king and now she's the queen and she's been the queen for like 30 years or whatever. And she just has all this military strategy. Like, where did she learn how to read? How can she read Latin? Where is she getting the books from? Is she just thinking this up herself? Because here's what she did. So either from information from an old Roman book of military strategies and or from the Celtic folklore she perhaps learned growing up. But was she Celtic? We don't know. But this is a thing that is a thing in Celtic mythology. So one way or another, Fredegand was the first recorded person to do the thing made famous in the play Macbeth by Shakespeare, where she camouflaged her troops with trees so they were all carrying like trees and branches and I guess wearing brown and green because they, like before, remember when she got them all to dress up like Bretons and Breton stripes? So this is like this time she used like, what if we, to sneak up on our enemy, disguise ourselves as a forest carrying branches? Like we'll just be like this little, so every time they look up, they'll be like, is that people? No, this looks like trees. That's just trees. So then they also put bells on the horses, which meant that if people looked up and they heard this little like bell ringing, they're like, that's just the cows. I don't know. Apparently that's part of the plan as well. That's not Macbeth, so I don't know that part as well. So they did this. They just like all put on some branches and headed out. So when a sentry from their enemy and their enemy being Brunhilde's team, he reported to his superiors, like the woods are moving closer. You know, he like looked up, he's like, if you saw that, it would be really weird, right? You'd just be like, the woods are literally getting closer. Every time I look up, they've like, scoot, 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 trees. So he was laughed off by his companions as a drunk. That's just like the guy who on the Titanic was like, iceberg, and everyone's like, mm, I don't think so. The soldiers were in fact reassured by the sounds of bells, which they assumed were cows and horses out to pasture and not an army of people on horses disguised as trees. So Fredigan's troops marched at night, as trees. I'm sorry. I just love it. I love the image of this. And quietly surrounded Brunhilde's forces, pouncing out in the morning. I guess just like throwing off all their branches and trees and being like, guess what, motherfuckers? It's not trees. It's Fredigand and her troops. And so the thing about this as well. So there's a story in Celtic mythology of somebody who did this. And that's maybe where Shakespeare got the idea from. Because spoiler a lot of information about Fredegand was suppressed for a long time. So I don't know if Shakespeare would have heard of Fredegand. But here's the thing. So there's a Celtic myth about people disguising themselves as trees to overtake the enemies, but it's possible. So either Fredegand heard that and was like, I'm just going to use this Celtic strategy, or potentially the Celtic myth was 
created about her doing this and she was the one who invented it so either either way is possible but i would call that amazing fred again never stop so then i didn't write it down but presumably they won that battle because i think they did fighting 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 brunhilde versus fred again but then two years later Brynhilda's son, Childebert, suddenly died, aged 25, as did his wife, Philuba. So in this story, you're like, okay, was that Fredegan finally being successful? But this likely was natural causes, or, you know, not poison or assassination, because if it had been, the chroniclers would have loved to have said that it was either Fredegan or Brunhilde who were responsible for that, and nobody suggested that at all, which I think means they probably just got, I'm going to guess dysentery because that's what everybody was dying of in this situation i think there was some plague happening as well actually that reminds me i needed to pass along this comment uh from my friend on instagram lulu.leslie who has a weather theory so the year 536 which is like six years after fredegan was maybe born so the year 536 has been dubbed the worst year in recorded history this is all Lulu.Leslie's words. Why do you ask? One or possibly many massive volcanic eruptions plunge the entire planet into 18 months of darkness. Very few hours of sunlight and just constant haziness and dust blocking out the sun for 18 months. This also triggered extreme famine and, of course, plague. But in addition to this 18 months of darkness, it triggered a mini ice age that lasted another century or so, Fredegan's time. So my guess, this is Lulu Leslie's guess, is that all the rain and flooding and the dysentery was all a part of this mini Ice Age Mother Earth healing process. And honestly, I'm so grateful for that information because it was just it, the amount of rain and flooding and dysentery that comprised like the first 30 years of Fredegan's life are just like, what is happening? But that all makes it all seem kind of more like high stakes, sort of. If you are these people living in like the year 500, whatever, and suddenly it's just like, oh, I guess it's just dark now for 18 months. You don't have like weather radar. You don't know why that's happening. You don't know that there was a previous ice age before in like dinosaur times. I don't even know if you know that there was dinosaurs. So like, of course, everybody's superstitious. Of course, everybody's afraid. They're probably afraid like, okay, well, seasons are just random now. We can't, like, what would that do to harvest and everything? So just kind of like the overall chaos of all of this makes so much sense in context that they're living through this, like, what's that movie with Jake Gyllenhaal? The, like, day after tomorrow or whatever. They're just living through that. Anyway, thank you, Lulu Leslie, for that. And I also meant to share that I also got a comment from my Instagram friend, Ms. Chaz, who, if you remember when Fredigan disguised her troops as bretons and i theorized that meant she put them all in like stripey shirts she mentioned breton striped shirts have 21 stripes it's neither here nor there but if you know you count so and i bet fredica knew to do the 21 stripes theoretically if that's what she dressed them up as just some little feedback from you and thank you for that so childebert died he was 25. He had a wife. Her name was Philuba. They were both pretty useless. Um, pretty uninteresting. Philuba was the ideal daughter-in-law for Brunhilde because she just like did whatever she was told, which is what Brunhilde wanted her daughter-in-law to be like. Anyway, but Childebert, do you remember when he had that talking to you from Guntram where Guntram was like, you're a man now, and Childebert was like, got it. And then he like got a courtesan pregnant. Childebert had children. And this was... Uh, society which is interesting because so much of it is similar to like tudor era or whatever but so much of it is not and that takes me by surprise which is that who the mother of children is did not didn't really matter if you were a king and you had children all of those children could equally inherit property it's not like these are the children with my wife and these are children with my mistress and these are the children that i whatever one night stand they could all inherit so, Childebert had left two sons and one daughter. So, the son, because this is also this patriarchal society, so the son took over, and Brunhilda continued it on as a regent to the new baby king. And then, because of this whole weird thing they do in the society, where, like, when you have more than one son, then each son inherits some land, 
so Childebert's two sons each got their own little bit of land. So the Frankish kingdoms were now in three bits again. So each of Childebert's sons could have their own bit. And the third bit was Fredegund and Claudebert. Claudebert? God, these names. I take a week off from recording and I'm just like, what is anyone's names? Anyway, um, so these kids. So the, the little baby kings. So including, so Brunhilde's two grandsons and Fredegund's son were 9, 10, and 11 years old, respectively. So not old enough in this era. I think you had to be 13 or 15, something like that, to like officially be king in your own right. And so Fredegund and Brunhilde had both established so much um, power just as the regent for the previous. Well, no, Fredegund hadn't lost anything. Fredegund just continued on as regent. And Brunhilde, it just seemed like a no-brainer that she would stay on as the regent for her grandsons now, which is a very like Catherine de' Medici moment, which if you know that story, which I feel like would also be its own three-part special on this podcast, she was the regent for like three of her sons in a row. Um, so these little boys were technically the king, but Fredegund and Brunhilde were co-ruling the entire Frankish area for scope. So thank God I actually wrote this down. So these kingdoms, these three kingdoms, was an area encompassing modern-day France, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Western and Southern Germany, and swaths of Switzerland. So in terms of people controlling this amount of land, which if we just say like the Frankish kingdoms were all one thing, Fredegund was in charge of one bit, Brunhilde was in charge of two bits, only Charlemagne would briefly rule over as expansive of a kingdom. So these two women, just like, if we're talking significance, mega significant, but it's like they were allies, but also always trying to kill each other, but they both had the loyalty to like Frankish lands in general. But then the main chronicler of all of this, Gregory of Tours, died at around the same time. So, and he was the one who... Brunhilde had made him a bishop, so he was always kind of like Team Brunhilde in his chronicles, but he also wrote down about all the rain, the dysentery, he wrote about everything Fredegund did, all the rumors, like, thank you for your service, Gregory of Tours, for all of this information, but he died. And then no one really picked up after him to like write down all the juicy gossip of Frankish times. So there isn't as much info known about this era where Brunhilde and Fredegund ruled most of Western Europe. They did, and I'm sure they did cool shit, but we don't have examples of it. Thank God Fredegund's dressing up as trees thing happened before Gregory died. One thing we do know that happened is that Brunhilde was, she helped to fund the first ever, I think, asterisk, Christian mission trip to England, which wasn't called England then. It was called like who was living there it was like they're like the angles is what they were called so this mission trip was led by a person named augustine who became later known as saint augustine and it was sort of dreamed up the whole the whole thing was conceptualized by the pope at that time who was gregory the first aka gregory the great aka i think he became a saint later on but here's what's fun fact he was the one who popularized Gregorian chants, named after him, Gregory the Great. So the the thing is, Gregory the Great was like, I think we should go, I think he saw some like enslaved little English people, or Angles, as they were called. And everybody here, I'm going to guess, sort of had the coloring of like, like a darker tan skin, maybe like dark hair, sort of like a stereotypical if you think of like the traditional coloring of like the people of ancient Rome or Greece. And they saw these angles, these uh, captured enslaved children who had coloring like kind of me, <laughs> like pale skin, freckles, blue eyes, um, reddish goldish hair. And Gregory was so taken with them. He was like, wow, they're kind of like these angles are angels. He, he made that pun, but in Latin. So he was like, we should go and find, like, introduce Christianity to England. And then, so Augustine was the person he sent, and then Brunhilde was, provided the funds to do this. So if we're talking, not that we're scoring Brunhilde today, but if we're talking significance, Brunhilde funded 
the first mission trip that and it worked um augustine convinced the king i forget who his name was it's like ethelstan or something uh augustine was successful and then england became christian and then look at the world we live in today so that's were we scoring brunhilde in terms of significance i think she would get a 10 just for that because england becoming a christian country kind of still is a thing that mattered in the world in the sense of like colonization and evangelicalism and everything and this was this is where that all started so she was doing stuff like that fred again was not about that life missionary life instead she was working to make her kingdom of neustria bigger and more powerful so brunhilde i think like she had so much land she was just like let's take our story across over into england and like she attempted kind of like fun missions. Meanwhile, Fredegan was busy just like trying to steal back parts of Brunhilde's land. That was her focus. So finally, Fredegan, having proven herself with the whole trees disguise situation, she now had the trust of her troops. Because remember when she was doing assassinations, she tended to hire like, or to pay slash bribe slash force uh, enslaved people slash unpaid servants slash household staff to do this stuff and maybe generally they would then die but in one instance they didn't and that was partially because she well just these underhanded things worked best for her but also because the troops just didn't trust her maybe because she was a woman but she proved herself with the whole trees disguise thing so again she rode into battle with the soldiers who were now cool with her coming along because they saw that she was this military genius and so she'd heard about how Brunhilde would let her young son and or grandson like sort of like technically like lead the group of troops, even though they wouldn't fight because they were children. Fred again tactfully let her 13 year old son Clothar uh, ceremonially lead the troops as it charged through. Um, and this particular mission, they took over Paris, which has been like a thing. Paris is just like constantly switching hands. Who's in charge of it? Because... At the very beginning of the story, that was the one city that all the brothers were supposed to share. So, of course, that's where everyone kept trying to take over. So, Fredegund and Clothar charged through with her troops, took control of Paris, quote, like barbarians, which presumably, I'm guessing, means just in kind of like a pretty chaotic and Fredegund manner, not using, you know, like polite rules of battle, but just like, honestly, kind of like a Bodica mood when Bodica just took over or like burnt down London Dinium. Just a similar sort of thing. Fred again just like showed up, took over just in this brutal manner, and here she is. So her army won, of course. They took over Paris because she knew what she was doing and everybody was terrified of her. And then she, and then because she super knew what she was doing, not just like fighting with the army and like coming up with strategies, but she also knew the public relations side of things. So she had a ceremonial parade into Paris, like a victory parade with her son. So just to be like, hello, people of Paris, here's who is in charge of you now. It's me, Fredegund, also my son, who is 13. So the last time she had been, like she'd spent any amount of time in Paris was after her husband had just died and she was hiding out and she had to like write to Guntram being like, oh no, I'm a poor woman with a secret baby. Please come help me, me. And now she was like, returned to be like, look at me now. And the people, the people of Paris were like, we like this. We're into this. Fred again. We're all team Fred again now. Let's do this. And she didn't stop there. She kept amassing amazing military victories that made everybody respect how good she was at this, at military commanding. Even Brynhilde allegedly was like, yeah, she's okay. But um, Fred again was so successful, like, you would think she was almost the monarch, even though she's just the mom of the monarch. But everybody was just kind of like, what's going to happen when her son, Claudebert, comes of age? Which, he's 13, so I guess you have to be 15 to be king officially. Yeah, 15 was when Childebert was like, I guess I'll go make someone pregnant now. So everybody started to suspect, like, what's going to happen when her son turns 15? Like, how is she, she's not going to want to stop being in charge but like our society does not like women being in charge of things. Uh, the usual thing in this era was to ship off queen mothers to convents and like hide them away forever. But Brunhilde hadn't had to deal with this because I don't know why. 
Her son was 25 when he died, but she was still like super in charge. So maybe Fredegund was planning. To... Anyway, that's what they didn't want. They didn't want Fredegund to become the new Brunhilde and just like cling onto power, even though her son was old enough to be a king. Fredegund obviously would not have wanted to be sent off to a convent. And if she was like, she probably would trained all the convent nuns into like being an army and then like burned everything down or whatever. So everyone was just kind of like, mm, what's going to happen? But then, I mean, shockingly, Fredegan just died. She just died in the year 597. Natural causes barely into her 50s. So she had spent her 40s just being this warrior, queen, amazing military commander. And then she just, she just died. Like, it's very anticlimactic because, yeah, there were no rumors that she'd been assassinated, which given everything about her, like, if there was the smallest rumor, like, if someone made up a fake rumor that would have been recorded because her life is so controversial. So she probably, I don't know. I do not know what the natural cause was. Maybe dysentery, although she hadn't died of that so many times before. Maybe an infected wound. Maybe cancer i do not know maybe plague so fredegund her body was prepared in the traditional manner which i'm going to talk about because i'm not ready to stop talking about fredegund even though she's dead like here we go so she was embalmed then wrapped in linen strips that had been soaked in aloe nettles thyme and myrrh then she was dressed in her most gorgeous silk outfit and her finest jewels and laid to rest in a plain sarcophagus they weren't able to uh, lay her to rest next to her four dead sons because they had all died in like various places throughout the last 30 years like they weren't all in one place but she was laid to rest with great fanfare in Paris where she still was having just taken over it next to her husband who had died when they were there also and so her son Clothar became full f Clothar yeah I called him Clodebert before Clothar so sorry Clothar that's your name Clothar became full-fledged king, aged like 14 or whatever. And we're going to talk about, like briefly what happened after I've got, okay. So he wasn't as amazing as his mother because who could ever be, like who could ever be Fred again? There's only ever one Fred again. He's also a 14-year-old king, like mm, how's he going to do? So in the years, like after Fred again died... Clothar's armies were defeated by Brunhilde's armies. Brunhilde ended up winning back most of the land Fredegund had conquered, including Paris. So Clothar wound up with an even smaller amount of land than when his father had first. His father, remember, Chilperic, one of the original four brothers, who got kind of the smallest part then. So Neustria was now even smaller than then. Brunhilde didn't continue taking over, though. She didn't take over that little tiny piece of land. She just kind of let him have this humiliatingly small area, which I guess was kind of her power move. But also, when she went into Paris, she didn't disturb Fredegund's tomb or even move it, which she could have. So I feel like that's a sign of sort of respect, you know? Queen recognized queen. And Brunhilde, still alive, so... This is kind of like a little epilogue for you. So remember her son died, so then her grandson was the king. But then the grandson died, but he'd also had a son. And this is the benefit of like starting having sons when you're 15. So Brunhilde stepped in for a third regency. So she's like 70 years old, and now she's the regent continuously again. But this time for her great-grandson. And by now, the noble men were just like, still? Like, still? Like, you're still here? Her plan at this point was to combine, um, because the whole, th like how it kept messing things up. Like when somebody died in the Frankish kingdoms, they would, no matter how many pieces of land there were, they would then redivide it up so that each other's sons would get a piece of land. But Brunhilde was like forward thinking. She's like, what about one kingdom? Um, there's this whole complicated thing that you can read about in the book, The Dark Queens. I've talked about it a zillion times and I will mention it again. I was just focusing on Fredegan's story, but there's this huge thing where she was, she's going to double cross this one army general, but then he heard about it. So then he double crossed her. So he tricked Brunhilde's four great grandsons as they headed out with an army. Now these great grandsons were like six, eight, nine, and 10. Like, again, they're just kind of ceremonial little kids. 
They were surprise attacked by Clothar and his forces. So Fredegan's son, Clothar, still around. Despite the fact that Brunhilde's sons and grandsons keep dying so young, Clothar has got some good resilient genes. So there's these four great-grandsons. This is a book in his bookend because it started with the four brothers. So one of the great-grandsons fled. The other three were captured. Back at the palace, Brunhilde and her great-granddaughter were also captured by Clothar's forces. So Clothar was able to capture them all because of this guy, the whole double cross of it all. So everybody was brought to Clothar, the Brunhilde, the daughter, and the three sons they were able to capture. The two older boys, so Clothar was just like, Brunhilde finally in her in his grasp. And so he knows that like she was the one who his mother had been warring against like her whole life. Um, he knew that his mother was trying to kill her the whole time, but also he knew that these were these were his enemies. Like if he was ever going to take more of the Frankish kingdoms, he had to get rid of all these people. Like if he, if he gets rid of one of the boys, then another one would take over and it just never stops. So Clothar ordered the two older boys to be executed which they were probably by axe. The youngest boy, because remember those three, was sent off to be raised by a noble family in Neustria, Clothar's kingdom. Why was he spared? Probably because Clothar was his godfather, which is wild. Um, that I keep forgetting that this is like literally all in family. And Clothar took seriously the duty of being godfather, but also because of the way that boys keep dying, he maybe maybe thought, like, I might need this guy to be my heir one day, so who knows. The great-granddaughter, the little girl, is also spared from execution. She was, who knows what happened to her? No one wrote it down, but let's just assume she was shipped off to a convent like every other girl in this story. And then Clothar was left to decide what to do about Brunhilde. The options were usually ship her off to a convent because again that is what they did but remember last time she shipped up to a convent she like teamed up with autovira and then had this secret sexy marriage and then like anyway like you know sending brunhilde to a convent isn't going to stop her even if she's 70 years old but it was what was complicating things was the one missing grandson so there's the four boys two of them were executed one of them was sent off to be raised as a potential heir the fourth boy had escaped and no one knew where he was so if this little boy ever popped up again um, and Brunhilde was around, she would be able to verify or corroborate his identity. And there would be chaos war all over again because that boy could come back and try to take over. Um, but then also everybody knew now that Fredegan was dead, Brunhilde was the smartest and most clever person in this entire extended family. And as long as she was around... She would still have some power and some followers. And so it was decided that Brunhilde would be executed. So she was brought out into a field. I'm not sure why this is all outdoors, I guess, because they were all on army campaign and that's tents. I don't know. She was, this is wild. Brunhilde was accused by Clothar of all the things that Fredegund had literally done. She was accused of killing four kings, that being um, Sigebert, her own husband. Um, she was accused of the suicide of her second husband, Merovich. She was accused of the jailhouse murder of Fredegund's stepson, Clovis. Um, and then also was blamed for the death of Clothar's toddler-aged son, who probably just had dysentery like every other little boy in this story. Um, wildly in this list of kings and heirs who she was accused of killing, most of whom Fredegund had killed or were dead because of Fredegund. He also included Brunhilde's own two great-grandsons who Clothar had literally just executed. So these were some faco charges that she was being charged with. Um, she was found guilty because this was not like a fair trial, obviously. This is all just a performance slash sham. And a lot of it was meant to exonerate Fredegund from being thought guilty of anything because that's Clothar's mom and he wanted her name to be cleared. And as we'll see, he wanted her, he, wa he wanted Fredegund, his mom, to be remembered as just this like really good person slash mother slash not warrior assassinating pioneer. So because Brunhilde was found guilty of all these things, officially she was now considered to be guilty of all these things. She was, again, 70 years old, outdoors. 
stripped of all of her jewels and finery and so she just stood there shivering and just like you know a nightgown type thing and again people kind of thought like well what will her punishment be like sent to a convent probably um maybe sent to prison i don't know but clothar decided that her punishment would be execution as well um and it was pretty awful so she was tortured for three days um then was led outside and towards a camel which is like why is there a camel are we not basically in france what is going on uh the answer is clothar was inspired so kind of like his mom fredigan read about like the trees disguise and stuff so clothar was also knowledgeable about like what other people are doing in other places He's probably inspired by what the Byzantine Empire did to humiliate deposed tyrants. And the Byzantines had gotten the idea from Egypt, aka a place where camels lived. So what the whole process was is that Brunhilde was paraded around backwards, like she was sitting backwards on the camel. The camel was facing frontwards. It was supposed to be sort of like a mean way to be the opposite of a victory parade. And Brunhilde, even if she didn't know where Clothar got the idea from, but she probably did because she was also smart. In her culture, the Visigoths, a similar thing was done with a donkey just to humiliate somebody who was like an enemy of the king. The subtext of all this uh, also, I mean, the text is awful enough, but the subtext sort of highlighted her foreignness because she was a Visigoth. She wasn't Frankish like the other people. And so there's a big crowd there of men I guess, the army who Clothar had been with. They jeered and yelled insults at her, but she was just like, I feel like psychologically, like had left her body at this point because she was a 70-something-year-old great-grandmother in the 6th century who'd just been tortured for three days. So I'm sure she was just like ready for the sweet release of death at this point. So then they brought out horses. And different um, chronicles suggest different things. There may have been one, there may have been four, two maybe three but all the sources agree that the horses were wild and unbroken and Brunhilde was tied to them by her hands feet hair head or maybe all of these things again the sources vary but tied to these wild horses Clothar gave the command and the horses began to run and that is how Brunhilde died ripped apart slash stomped on by wild horses which is kind of like Fredigan's final revenge on her. But I don't know if Fredigan would have... She was, she was more tidy with her assassinations. But that was the story of how Fredigan's son Clothar took control of a united single Frankish kingdom by killing all of the other kings. But the story's not done yet. So, because the thing is that the kingdoms didn't want to be united... So Clothar agreed to let them each have their own mayor, but Clothar would still be the king of everything. And this did not work out well because the mayors all took lots of power and he wound up. His legacy was sort of um, kings without much power to them. Just a sec. So what does this say? So later divisions produced the stable units of Austrasia, Neustria, Burgundy, and Aquitania. But, um, (laughs) yeah, so, Clothar was succeeded by his son, Dagobert, who became uh, Dagobert I, but what happened with him... So there's still the the division, all the assassination, um, which continued for like another hundred years until somebody called Pepin the Short finally deposed the last Merovingian king in 751. And this established the Carolingian dynasty, which Charlemagne was famously part of. Ah, here we go. This is just from Wikipedia. So it says the Merovingian boy kings remained ineffective rulers who inherited the throne as young children and lived only long enough to produce a male heir or two. 
while the real power lay in the hands of the noble families who exercised feudal control over most of the land. Um, Dagobert was immortalized in a French song, which in French is called Le Bon Roi Dagobert, the good King Dagobert, which is a nursery rhyme about how he's um, pretty useless, which is a pretty sucky way to be remembered. But, um, so Fredegan's descendants, so it was Fredegan's descendants who became, who were the kings of the Merovingian Empire, the single considered king of the Franks for the next several decades. Not Brunhilde's descendants, because her son who ran away never came back, and all of the other ones were all killed as young children. But the Merovingian dynasty, they became known as the do-nothing kings, because the mayors had all the power um, and honestly, I feel like this is a sliding doors moment where Clothar just sort of was like, I'm going to reinvent my mother, Fredegand, as this kind of like saintly woman, not like technically a saint, but just this sort of like person who was like a cool mom and didn't go to battle at all. And then, I don't know, if he had embraced having women in power, maybe his dynasty wouldn't have been so stomped over. So basically right after Brunhilde's execution... Clothar set about erasing both Brunhilde and Fredegan's accomplishments from the historical record. He did this by... He didn't name any churches for his mother. He didn't apply to make her a saint, which would have been pretty easy because, like, Guntram was made a saint. Like, anyone could be a saint if the king wanted it to be. The chronicles, so the historical record, were edited to remove any of the accusations of Fredegan's misdeeds, particularly the stuff about her maybe being adulterous even though 303 witnesses you know supported that she was not so basically all the cool parts about fredigan were just like covered over leaving just behind the memory of a fake woman who never existed this placid docile and doting mother whose greatest accomplishment was giving birth to clothar so why did this happen it's definitely because fredigan and brunhilde's successes made the men who were in control of everything terrified to let queens or women do anything ever again because they Fredegan and Brunhilde both proved that like if someone is capable and knows what they're doing and can garner some support like it doesn't matter what gender you are you don't have to be a man to be successful so especially Fredegan's ascent from slave enslaved person to queen to military leader like everyone was just like this is like Fredegan and Brunhilde broke through that glass ceiling or whatever but the men who were left behind after they died were all kind of like well we cannot let that let's just like kind of like re whatever like glue back together that glass ceiling we don't want any women to know that that's even possible to do which is part of why they removed everything from the historical record in fact they changed laws or just practices so from then on, other queens of the Merovingian dynasty weren't ever allowed the same amount of control that Fredegan and Brunhilde had. Um, two, like in the next little while, two queens who briefly served as regents for their young sons were quickly sent off to convents. Like the men were just like, we can never let a Fredegan-Brunhilde moment happen again. And then the Carolingians, who took over after, were even worse, if you can imagine. So they were terrified that women could take as much power as Fredegan and Brunhilde had had. And so they allowed their women slash queens even less freedom. From their era, a smear campaign continued. So although Clothar had tried to be like, Fredegan, she was my mom, that's it. Nothing else to know about her. The Carolingians, to try and make it seem like women with power are just like evil seductresses or whatever. To try and show the women and girls of their society like don't do this because it's weird and unnatural for women to have power they just didn't want anyone to ever emulate what Fredegan and Brunhilde had done and so really in this area of like France Germany Switzerland Luxembourg Belgium etc uh, women did not really have any royal authority in those lands for centuries. Potentially the first one was Blanche of Castile, 700 years later, Catherine de Medici, 900 years later, like a long time later. Both of them, Blanche and Catherine, 
gained their power by being the regents for their young son slash kings. And there wasn't another queen rivalry. Like, there wasn't a woman in power in Western Europe, let alone two women in power who were enemies of each other until maybe Queen Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots in the 16th century. So way later, um, in the 12th century, renovations were done to the church where Fredegund had been, where her sarcophagus was left. Um, her sarcophagus was unearthed and she was given a new ornate marble slab. The new and improved memorial holds a scepter and wears a crown, but there's no face on it. I mean, hopefully because it was painted on, but it has now faded. It wasn't like they just didn't think she deserved having a face painted on. Unlike every other person who died in France, who I've ever talked about on this podcast, her tomb was not destroyed during the French Revolution. In the early 19th century, her tomb was moved to the Basilica St. Denis and placed next to her ancestor-in-law, um, Clovis I, who was the first Merovingian Frankish king. This also reunited her body with the tombs of her grandson and her great-grandson, so the other Merovingian kings. Um, honestly, the part that like bothers me the most about all of this, like I'm glad she's a cool tomb, I'm glad she's like, you can see it now, you can visit it, but the inscription on the tomb which I guess was put there in the 12th century. And maybe this is because um, her son had deleted all the information about how cool she was, but all, all it says in Latin is Queen Fredegund, wife of King Chilperic. Like, that's like the 10th least interesting thing about her, that she was the wife of Chilperic. I mean, it is an interesting thing because she became his wife because... Um, his first wife was sent off to a nunnery and then the second wife was murdered by him to marry her. But still, it's just like, ugh. there's like all of the respect to people who are wives and mothers. But Fredegund was uh, not just that. And to be remembered that way, just like erases everything I've talked about for the last, what, like three hours on this podcast. So... I've been stressing about this. It's time to score Ms. Fredigand. I made myself notes. So if you ever, if you haven't, you should listen to the podcast that's called The Rex Factor. Super good podcast. The hosts are these two British guys. And so their first season was they went from the very beginning of like English history, then through all the kings of England, and then they went through all the kings of Scotland. Now they're going through all the royal consorts. And so... And they score them. That was one of the podcasts that inspired me to set up a, the Scandalicious Scale for this podcast because I think it's just such a nice way to sort of like, to be able to to compare and contrast the different people we've been looking at. Anyway, so the way that they do their podcast often is they'll go through the biography and that's the first part. And then the second part, they just kind of like, because there's two of them, they like talk and debate what should the scores be. So in sort of a Rex factor like way, I made myself some notes because instinctively, and I asked this on Instagram on everyone basically was in agreement. I'm like, what should Fredigan's score be? And everyone's like, it should be a 40. It should be the first perfect score. It should be like 25,000. You should like invent a new score just for her. I'm like instinctively, like the fact that it's three episodes worth of stuff to talk about. It's like, I want to give her a 40 out of 40, the highest score anyone's ever gotten um the high score currently is queen margot has a 37.5 joanna of naples has a 33 but these are the categories i score people on and i don't want to be swayed by my own personal um reverence and love and affection for fredigan so i made myself notes so i can try to be objective about the scoring because even though this is like a special three-part episode it's unfair to the previous women I've scored to suddenly change the scale or the categories, etc. So, for scandaliciousness. Now, the things that I've written down for her scandaliciousness are, and there is some overlap between her scandaliciousness and her scheminess, because the they're fake categories, and she did things that are both. So, for instance, um, so scandaliciousness. Uh, 
winning the heart of Chilperic slash seducing him slash becoming his mistress, like her ascent from enslaved person to mistress of the king to like the queen is inherently scandalous. Remember how at the very beginning of the story, there was the four brothers and the one was like, I think it's not cool that some of us four brothers are like falling in love with servants. Like it clearly was scandalous to the people at the time. And then the fact that he didn't like the first wife was sent off to the convent, but then he didn't marry her. He married Gilswintha, but then he killed Gilswintha to be with her. Like just the, I don't know, like the tits out power of that, like whatever the female version of big dick energy is like she had it and he was just like, would do whatever she wanted. And that's also interesting too, because Chilperic was this famous sort of like womanizer, um, dirtbag. But once he met and fell in love with Fredegund, like that was it. Like he did whatever she said. He loved her so much. He worshipped her. Scandalous. I also kind of a scandalous point. Not that each of these things is one point, but a point towards her scandalousness score. Um, the way that she arranged the assassination of Sigebert um, immediately postpartum. The fact that she gave birth to a baby in a bunker. And then when she saw the army wasn't going to do this, she just like, got these coerced these two boys to go and do it and well the poison knives that'll be more scheminess but like anyway the way that she um that also ties in with her just giving no fucks about the sanctity of churches the way that Guntram was like "Ooh, if only we could like find a way to arrest Eberulf and she was like what if I just send a guy into the church and take him like why are you like pretending like this building has power the way that she um arranged the assassination of Pretextatus during Easter mass like that was very scandalous to people at the time, I presume, because there was just this common understanding that churches were sacred places, and Fredegund is like, but what if they're not? Um, scandalousness, the absinthe poisoning when the city heads came to her and she was just like, mm, what if I just kill you? The dinner party axe murder, I think, is just like very scandalous and maybe sort of an inspiration for the Red Wedding on Game of Thrones. And then all of the attempts to kill Brunhilde and Childebert were scandalous because I think Guntram was always like, you need to stop doing that. Like, there's a way to do this. And it's like sending armies and blah, blah, blah. Just her overall efficient way of just like cutting through the red tape to do stuff. Anyway, scandalousness. I said all that stuff and nothing has persuaded me to give her anything less than a 10. Like, she is a 10 out of 10 scandalousness. Honestly, if all she ever did was seduce the king into killing his wife like that's a 10 like she's just come on that's a 10 so for scheminess again i listed seducing chill Peric. like she knew i don't think she was like oh no i've been carried away with love and now i'm in love with the king like her actions later on show that she wanted maybe she loved him too but she clearly knew the sort of power she could get as his queen and that's like anne boleyn vibes right not just like as his mistress but as his one and only queen Scheminess, the military victories, the disguising as trees, the Breton stripes, um, all of her military victories, which is like literal scheminess. Like she made some good plans and then she won these battles because they're such good plans. Um, her assassinations, the attempted assassinations are also very schemy. Um, the fact that they didn't all work, but some of them did, like doesn't make it any less scheming she was constantly scheming she couldn't remember that part where Guntram just was like what if you just like go live in this castle and she's like great and while I'm in this castle I'm just gonna like try and kill Brunhilde again scheminess is like the oxygen she breathed and also I think it's also shows her scheminess how when her husband died and she was just like I need like I don't want to get married I have the secret baby oh the secret baby that's both scandalous and scheming Anyway, how she wrote to Guntram being like, oh no, I'm just a poor woman with a baby. Like, won't anyone help me? So tricking him to protect her, but then also lying that she's pregnant to get out of those boring dinner parties. Full on 10 out of 10 scheminess. Can't imagine her, can't imagine one scheme left that she did not do. Significance is where I'm just like, that's why I've been sort of stressing about it. But I, so I read back and reread some stuff about like, the history of the Franks and like the Merovingian dynasty and stuff. So, because the significance category is one that's kind of there 
it's both it's just so that we're not just measuring people just on scandaliciousness and scheminess like we want to give a well-rounded like there's people who did cool stuff but they're they weren't very scandalous and that was good because they weren't killed like women being scandalous and schemy throughout all of human history tended to often um not do well it's not a world that rewards that and that's part of why i like to reward that in this podcast but people who weren't who were scandalous but didn't have the significance basically the significance categories here for people who have that but maybe not so much scandalousness they found other ways to be significant so and i'm just like concerned about fred again because like even Brunhilde, when you look at the fact that she financed the first ever Christian mission trip to England and then it worked and then England became Christian and then that led to like the Reformation and then that led to like New England and like the colonies and like evangelical Christianity that is still a force in the world today. Like that's a 10 for Brunhilde. Fredegand didn't do that. But here's what she did do that I put in the significance category. The murder of Sigebert. Like, she assassinated a king. Significant. Her military victories? Significant. She helped to um, expand the territory of her country, even though later on her useless son lost all of that. It was significant that she had these military victories. And it's significant that she had military victories as a woman, because in this era, women were not, not leading battles. And then... So she did, and that was significant, even though the record of that was sort of, like, erased for a while. Um, She invented or popularized um, finding ways to make poison shelf-stable so you could have poison knives for your assassinating needs. Like, remember the, by, like, the third or fourth assassination attempt, the people had, like, a special pocket in the knife to put the poison in? Like, an innovator. Um, The trees disguise is significant not just because that's like so cool but also because it's in Macbeth and that's like a famous part of the play Macbeth and then it became part of Celtic um, folklore and or she learned it from Celtic folklore so that's like a major thing that she invented Um, the breaking of the glass ceiling of sitting as a judge in civil cases Brunhilde also did that um, but they both did that and that was like women had not done that in this era before she did not that like and from then on women were judges it's like no so that's like she did these things that were significant but how many of them echoed through time and changed the world and that's kind of where i sort of think about the significance category it's like how different would the world be if this person hadn't been in this place in time and then her son united the frankish kingdoms which lasted a while Um, until the Carolingians took over. But, like, her son united the Frankish kingdoms. Like, instead of having that dumb rule of, like, every son gets a kingdom, so you spend all your time just with the sons fighting each other, her her son united the Frankish kingdoms. Um, And that reminds me of just another comment from Facebook. Um, Bebovich underscore Bebovich said, considering that the line of Frankish kings descended from her son and not Brunhilde's or any of the other women in the story, I think that's very significant. Which it is. But it's just like, how? How significant is this? Like, at first I feared that her significance score would be low. But if it is, you know, I have to honor that and be truthful about it. But looking at all these things, I feel like her significance is in fact very good. And I'm going to give her an 8 for significance for sexism did i even write notes because this also seems kind of straightforward so living in a society where she always had to have a man protecting her she wasn't allowed to be queen on her own um she was accused of adultery and of being a witch the troops didn't trust her until she proved that she was a military genius like she how much sexism did she deal with the fact that her like entire legacy was erased after she died is a 10 for sexism. So when you add that all up, it is 38, which is 0.5 higher than Queen Margot. A new record. Fredegund, I'm just typing her in here into my little document. 38. 
I wonder if anyone will ever get a 40. Like, I can't imagine anyone doing more than Fredigand on anything. But also just because, again, I don't want to disrespect the other women who I've scored on the scandalousness scale by changing anything now. I considered, like, should I give some sort of, like, special power veto to myself where I can just, like, assign bonus points where I feel like someone's score is too low? I'm like, no, because that's not fair to the other people who I've scored. But what I am going to do is just to show how significant Fredigand is to me uh, that she has been to the podcast that I hope she is now to all of you I'm going to rename the Scandalicious Scale the Fredigand Memorial Scandalicious Scale I'm just typing it henceforth when we are grading anybody It's going to be, we're going to like, let's see how they score on the Fredigand Memorial Scandaliciousness Scale. Scandalicious Scale? On the Fredigand Memorial Scandalicious Scale. She's at the top. I'm happy about it. It's not a perfect score, but I mean like, who is perfect? The point of this podcast isn't to try and like find the perfect person and then be like, now the podcast is over, we found the perfect, perfect person. It's just to kind of like measure what struggles do people have? Um, how much tits out scandaliciousness did they have? Like Fredigand at the top at this point, I think she deserves it. Uh, let me know what you think about the scoring, I guess, though. Um, Instagram is where you can mostly find me. I'm not even at that part of the podcast yet where I talk about that stuff. Maybe I am. Um, yeah, so on Instagram. We're at Vulgar History Pod. You can send me DMs there with your thoughts as well. Um, on Twitter, we're at Vulgar History. You can support me on my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Writer. So that is where there's various tiers. I think I've talked about this before. But basically, if you pledge $1 or $2 per month, then you get early access to the regular podcast episodes. Um, if you pledge... $2 a month, you also get to vote in polls, and then if you vote f- and then if you pledge $5 a month, which is different in different currencies, so it's like $5 US currency, um, then you get to listen to the so there's different rewards for different levels, so if you pledge one, any amount over a dollar per month, you get early access to episodes of vulgar history i mean it's not like five weeks early but it's like a couple days early so that's your little treat and then if you pledge five dollars or more then you get access to special mini episodes so this asshole episodes where i just talk about men who suck in history and i do one of those every month even when we're on hiatus from vulgar history i feel like the next one i might do might be charlemagne because his name came up in the story and i'm just like What's his deal? Anyway, so that's all if you go to patreon.com slash Writer. I've also got an exciting new um, URL for the store. So it's at vulgarhistory.store, like vulgarhistory.store, which is where you can find our merch, including Fredigand merch. We've got That's So Fredigand. We've got She's Just Being Fredigand. And then other Fredigand-based things as well as tits out merch. If you do go there, vulgarhistory.store, use code TITSOUT, T-I-T-S-O-U-T, for free shipping in the U.S., or use code TITSOUT10, the numeral 10, like T-I-T-S-O-U-T-1-0, for 10% off. And so that's just to give you some help if you're not in the U.S., a little discount. And um, I've mentioned it a gazillion times, but I want to mention it again because it's such a good book. And I will be talking about it more when it comes out probably so the dark queens the bloody rivalry that forged the medieval world by shelly puhak a book that is coming out february 2022 so just a couple months away from now and thank god for this book thank you very much to the publishers who got me an early access copy of it because that's where i got so much information about fredigand about brunhilda about about the whole situation 
thank you to Bloomsbury USA, who is the American publisher of this book. Um, yeah, for getting me early access to it so I could do this podcast. And that's it for now. Um, there will be a new season of Vulgar History coming out at some point. When will that be? Who's to say? But in the meantime, keep your mask on. Keep your tits out. Love you all. Talk later. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.